Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you become the kind of advisor people can't help talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and today Steve and I are talking to Jim Asplund. I think you're going to love this conversation. Jim is Chief Scientist of Gallup's Strengths-Based Development and Performance Impact Consulting Practices. That is a mouthful. He's also the co-author of Human Sigma, Managing the Employee-Customer Encounter. And it's a book that I highly recommend for anyone thinking about client or team engagement. We talked to Jim about the concept of Human Sigma, which is all about the inextricable link between employee and team engagement. He tells us why satisfaction isn't enough and how we need to be thinking beyond rational satisfaction and toward emotional connection. Through this lens, you'll have a new view into what it takes to stand out and truly differentiate your business. We talk about measuring engagement as well as driving engagement, and I think you'll get a lot from the discussion. With that, let's get straight to the conversation with Jim. So, Jim, welcome to the Becoming Referrable podcast. So happy to have you here. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, welcome, Jim. Great to be here. Um, so I have to confess, I'm, I'm a bit fangirl with this stuff because I'm a supreme geek and I read a lot of books. <laughs> and um, I have... Uh, referenced your book and quoted you many times over the years uh full attribution i promise but there was so much sense in the book that you wrote and it was so practically and clearly written that um i'm going to recommend that to everybody right off the bat but we're going to go in a little deeper and talk about some of the, the concepts and and one of the things i'd love to start with jim is your bio describes you as leading Gallup's research on the science of human strengths, which I think sounds pretty cool, uh, and then how to apply them to improve performance. Can you tell us just a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for the introduction. I'm, I'm going to make sure my mom hears that. Yeah. <laughs> Later in the day. Yeah, yeah. for sure. The, Somebody uh, loved uh, me, mom. They really do. <laughs> the, the uh, you know, Gallup's been studying, um, you know, uh, sort of human uh, potential, human strengths for a, a long time. Our former chairman, Don Clifton, started researching this in the 40s. He was one of the earliest uh, guys in the sort of the field that's known as positive psychology in terms of you know, flipping the sort of usual sort of medical model that a lot of us learned in, in, in university in, in terms of psychology and, and, and then studying more what, what, what are people like when they do well as opposed to when things aren't going so well, what's, mm-hmm. what's a dysfunction. And so the, the strengths uh, research then comes about sort of how do we identify what our greatest opportunities are for success are, you know, when we identify and, and apply our, kind of our individual uh, talents uh, at optimal, in optimal ways. And so we developed this assessment that a lot of people might be familiar with called the Clifton Strengths Finder, Clifton Strengths Assessment, that uh, it's been around about 20 years now. And um, about 23 million people have taken it so far. And we identify these sort of core set of 34 uh, talents or strengths, you know, as, and so that's a, there's a little bit, a bit involved in terms of how do you turn what is sort of your natural inclination or preference or talent into a strength by adding skills and, and knowledge and, and behaviors that, that and experience, you know, that, that help those things do. But the idea essentially is that we all have things that we're better at than others, which is, I think is a non-controversial position. Um, we think we tend to think that your time is better spent in those areas to the extent possible, um, and that it, and it, those are the things at which you're going to excel and be repeatable at. Um, and so the way I am most successful as, say, a financial planner might be different than how you would do it because we're different people. And so how do we be honest about that and help people develop that to their best potential? And so that's what the strengths research is really about. Um, and we've done a lot of research to show that not only do these things exist and that they're easily identifiable through this assessment, but that in fact, that when you do learn these and learn to develop them about yourself, your performance is higher and the performance of the teams you're on, excuse me, is better and you get along with each other better and you're more inclusive and all these good things that we want in our workplace today. And so it's a really fun area of research to work on. And uh, if I could jump in, uh, um, Jim, so I, I can imagine that a lot of our um, listeners w- hearing that would love to, to to be able to participate in that, and I will put some stuff in the show notes. But just since we're just talking about it, um, can people access that and 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 take that assessment? You bet. Um, 
I should be really facile with the website, which of course I'm not, <clears throat> you know, it's when they let researchers loose, you know, they don't always let us tell these, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very short assessment. It's, we say it's 30 minutes, but most people, it takes less time than that. If you go to the gallup.com, it's pretty easy to find. Uh, we have a, a, written a lot of books, you know, our, our, uh, my former colleague, Tom Rath wrote this book called StrengthsFinder 2.0, which is, I think the best selling business book of all time. Uh, you know, the assessment's in there. Um, now we have an upgraded version. If you go straight to the online site, you get more information if you go take that version of it rather than the book. But um, but it's available in a lot of different places. And so if you look for StrengthsFinder or Clifton Strengths, uh, you'll find it very easily. Great. Thank you. And, and it is. Uh, so I am one of those 23 million people. I'm, I'm Wonderful. proud to say um, we did this a number of years ago and we went the book route. So it's good to know that there's an upgraded one. And what I love about is that your comment about taking your natural inclinations and adding skills, because I think so many of these uh, these uh, assessments that we do almost suggest like this is who you are and it feels almost immovable. Uh, and maybe that's helpful, but this this speaks to change as well. Um, now, one of the the, the book that uh, that you were involved with writing, Human Sigma, um, came out some time ago, but is is really evergreen in in my mind. And what was particularly intriguing to me about that book is is this connection between. Um, client engagement and team engagement, I'll call it, and the way in which those two things work in tandem. Um, so I'd love to dig in on some of that, but maybe you can just start with a definition of what Human Sigma is. Sure. It's, um, well, you know, the book was written sort of as a, as a compendium of some research we'd done. So it's sort of a a bit of research on that employee customer encounter, if you will. Mm -hmm. it, there's, it's a sort of a man management approach that, that's in the book, as well as a sort of a measurement model that gets at how do you uh, best measure uh, and also manage those encounters, you know, employees, team members have with their clients or customers. And how do you do that in a way that's um, productive, um, that's easier, perhaps, than, than what you're trying to do now? And in a way that, and when you, and when you do those things, in fact, there's there's significant um, operational and financial benefits to that as well. But I think we've what we, another thing we found is that when you do it right, it's actually more natural uh, mm -hmm. for people than than some of the other things people try to get them to do. So, uh, mm -hmm. so the good news well, we is all, that it might be easier to to do better. <laughs> yeah, 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 and because in what what just struck me, I think, in reading it is that so often we look at. Uh, customer or client process and experience. And then in some separate silo, we look at team experience and engagement, but it was the way in which those two things came together. That was, I just, I, I thought was really interesting. I mean, was that uh, something that for you was kind of an obvious thing or, or did you discover the connection through the research? A little bit of both, you know, I, so I grew up in a really small town on a farm. And so you, you, you learn, uh, you know, that, that things have uh, uh, memory and that you, you, people, you meet people who wear very different hats. So the idea that I might be your employer and then the next day you might be my little league coach. You know, these are, these are things that aren't, that happen <laughs> in a small town. Right. So, so in that sense, it was not uh, unusual to me, but you know, when you get the data um, and you work with clients, you know, sometimes, as you mentioned, these things get a little um, balkanized or siloed where, the people who operate on the employee experience, it's very, in a, in a large organization, you know, there's a lot to do. You know, how do we know when things are going well? How do we know when they're not going well? What do we do about it? And uh, and then by the same token, you got people in market research or in operations studying the customer. You know, what operations, what procedures do we need to make that right? What offerings do we have that, that help, you know, us attract business? And how do we make sure that the customers uh, are pleased with that and, and want to come back and all that? And then when you hand these, oftentimes we found that, the poor person operating, you know, to make it simple, like a store, um, you know, out in any any town USA or, or North America, uh, um, uh, the manager and the people working the store get these two things to do, and and it's not often a lot of sense is made between the two of them, and so mm -hmm. they have to kind of work that out for themselves. Um, and the way they're managed often is 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 as independent entities, which of course we all know they're not, um, and yet you know, the demands that are placed on them sometimes could be at odds with each other. And, and if you back that up into the sort of the corporate environment, 
where those uh, initiatives or instructions were made, you might often find, we often found that those people that were giving them these instructions had never met, which is a little strange, um, or, or didn't know each other very well or weren't working in concert. And so the idea sort of organically emanated out of our own experience to how do we make that easier for people on the front line to, to do this, but also as we collected the data from various uh, places where we were doing work on both of these things, we found in a, in a lot of examples that in some of which appear in the book where people had managed to kind of get it wrong, where they were, they focused. So and sometimes they would, uh, in the employee experience, it would be sort of communicated that if you get this right, it fixes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and that sort of narrow point of view, yes, engaged employees will be more productive and will treat your customers better. But they also do a lot of other things that maybe need to be steered a little bit. And so we found workplaces where employees loved working there, but where customers were almost sort of a distraction from the joy of working, um, which of course is, you know, obviously sure. a defeats the purpose of some of that in the first place. And similarly, we found environments, uh, they were less common, but similarly, we found environments to, you know, to kind of paint a cartoonish picture here, but where, you know, the customers or the clients were loving to work there, but they were uh, eating up the employees to get them there, you know, by by the way they were doing it. And so mm-hmm. what we found, you know, statistically in terms of examining, uh, you know, millions of employees and customer interactions that, that really, if you do the employee part right in service of the customer, where you're good at both of these things, which sounds, again, sort of tautological almost, but where you, where you kind of manage them together, um, the benefits are, 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 uh, orders of magnitude sometimes even higher uh, in terms of financial growth. And also you, you have a healthier sort of long-term ecosystem in terms of them supporting each other. Um, so the book kind of gets into why of all that and, 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 and how the measurement of that works. But I think more importantly gets into unbundling some of the things that people have done that kind of steered them in the wrong direction. I, you know, I, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying. I used to work at a university a long time ago, and, and there would be times when there would be a break or summer or something like that. And we used to joke around that, geez, you know, you can get an awful lot done without all these students running around. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but so I'd like to, I'd like to shift this a little bit from, uh, from the employee side to the, to the, uh, to the client side. And you had said, you know, how do you create an experience that people enjoy and want to come back for? And, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people in our industry are sort of obsessed with is is uh, uh, client satisfaction. And in your research, one of the findings is that satisfaction uh, isn't the whole story. There's not enough there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and, and where we need to go from there? Sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, we have, you know, found it, you know, like a lot of people, we were measuring satisfaction a lot in the early 90s, like a lot of people. Um, and finding that... Um, you know, obviously, it's better to satisfy your customers than not to. Um, but we found we, we started to discover that was pretty pretty low bar, really. I mean, you know, in a lot of uh, interactions, it's it's actually not that hard to do. Um, and and in fact, not doing it usually it was the functional equivalent of making a mistake. And um, and so as we kind of got into this, <clears throat> we we went into it very intentionally, try to decide. You know, when you get, because a lot of our clients had really high scores, right? After we worked with them for a while, you, you got nothing to say if you're if you're pegging the meter we're using, right? So the, the measure of which we were using to identify you as good was was maxing out. And we said, well, we obviously, we're still seeing areas where, where they could be doing better. So how, how can that be? And so we very did a very intentional sort of bit of literature review and, and research of our, of our existing clients and, and some other companies and, you know, talking with a lot of customers, thousands of customers. And we identified some things that I think, Sorry, this answer is a little long, but I think some <laughs> okay, things. We gotta, are, it's, it's a thirty-minute podcast. Go ahead. But again, in retrospect, <laughs> you know, are, are a little bit obvious um, uh, that there are circumstances where you could actually find where the, the general things you look at in terms of satisfaction. You know, how long did you wait in line, and and you know, what did it cost, and things like that. Where you know, and then and then you ask people if they're ever going to go back again. Those answers didn't line up. I mean, the classic example that's in the book is you know taking your kids to Disneyland. And you know, it's the lines were long, and it was super hot, and um, and uh, and so you, the answers all sound like you didn't have a good experience. And then when you ask people if they're going to go back, they go, we go every year. It's the greatest place on earth. And, and, <laughs> and how could that be? Well, it's the the emotional payoff in their children's eyes was worth all of that stuff. And so, so we started to understand, you know, and and uh, my colleague in the in the book, John Fleming, is a social psychologist, and so he had a little insight into this, or maybe before I did, and. Um, um, so we, you know, kind of studying, you know, how do you create that sort of emotional, 
uh, relationship that, you know, if you look at, uh, and neuroscience has become much more common parlance now than it was when we were doing the research, let alone when we wrote the book, um, that people are more familiar now that, that we have kind of an emotional part of our brain that, in fact, frames a lot of the way we make decisions. And in fact, you know, the decision is often a rationalization after our emotional part of our brains already decide what we're going to do. Um, and so we found that there's a sort of a two stages of satisfaction. There's sort of a rational satisfaction, which is what everybody was measuring. And there's a sort of emotional satisfaction, for lack of a better word, at the time that, you know, actually is on top of that in terms of how we make our decisions. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board and said, how do we discuss how people form these sort of emotional attachments with brands uh, and with experiences and did a lot of research to come up with what's in the book. Um, and in fact, in, in the end, we actually, in, in, a, in an attempt to prove this, you know, life is interesting sometimes. We had a colleague in Japan who said, hey, some friends of mine have an fMRI machine at the university here. Would you like to use it? And we said, sure, before we had a clue what we were going to do. Because it <laughs> sounded sound like cool. fun. Yeah, we were I would, to actually yeah. get a, a customers of a department store chain in Japan to put um, to put themselves in this machine. I think essentially because they got a picture of their brain. That was kind of the payoff, you know, for, for everybody. Um, you know, the, the doc. You know, they, and we had the guy. Luckily, we had partners there at, at, at Nihon University who who knew how to do this stuff and how to do these studies. And we found out that um, uh, not only were the questions we asked about emotional attachment. Uh, predictive of kind of how your brain acts. It helped explain a little bit of what was going on. That um, it turns out that that uh, these people's impressions of uh, their experience at the department store, and, and we checked, you know, against other things to kind of make that research work. Um, their brains were making uh, associations and judgments really faster than they could compute the information. And so the way we interpreted that was, if you're really fond of an experience, your brain can communicate that very quickly. And, um, and you can imagine all the feedback systems in your brain, the dopamine and the endorphin system that tell your brain that you're happy. Um, uh, and then also the, on the negative side, it was happening even faster, essentially faster than you could compute the information. So if you think about this in the right way, if, if, it, if a customer is emotionally very dissatisfied with you, um, they don't take your information in. They're ignoring you. The worst thing you can do as a human being is ignore another human being. Um, it's, it's usually worse than actually yelling at somebody in a lot of circumstances. You know, and, and you see this in parenting and, and in manager situations and in client situations. And so, um, so if you think about what that means in terms of getting clients or getting customers, how do you get your advertising to be perceived by somebody who hates you because they don't even see it? <laughs> Their brain does not register it. And so, so anyway, this is a long kind of convoluted story, but, but they're, they're, these emotional uh, parts of our brain, and, and it's all walks of life, by the way, it's not our commercial decisions, it's everything we do, um, really trump uh, the rational part of our brain. Because if you think about sort of a classical, you know, rational actor in a lot of these old uh, economic studies, our brains actually don't have the computing power to do what, what we're supposedly doing when we make decisions. You know, most of what we do um, you know, if you had to think about taking every step and lifting your hand to drink a cup of coffee, you know, you'd, you'd be exhausted. Uh, a lot of this stuff's very automatic. And, and so how we relate to people and how we relate to our experiences around us, uh, these are very fundamental everyday things that our brain have to do, you know, millions of times a day. Um, and uh, well, maybe not millions, thousands of times a day. And, um, and a lot of that's on automatic and, and, and very fundamental to human nature. And so what we're getting at in the book is how do you take advantage of that instead of flying in the face of it by trying to make people think when they really don't want to. And well, so let's talk a little bit then about how we measure this stuff, because so you could argue at one end of the spectrum, we give every client an MRI. Let's say that's not <laughs> entirely. <practical. laughs> um <laughs> And maybe at the complete opposite end of the the uh, spectrum, we come up with a single question, like say net promoter score, to to try to capture all of that. Um, you know, net promoter is something that has uh, sort of taken over. It seems the imagination, certainly in in our industry and and others. Um, you know, I have some reservations about it, uh, but what's what's your view on net promoter? And like, when when did you see it work? When do you think we need to be cautious about it? Sure. Um, and, well, and to your point, um, on when we put people on that fMRI machine, we found that the questions we did ask people about their emotional experience were highly predictive of those brain actions. So there mm -hmm. are a set of questions you can't actually ask. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not just one. I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But, um, you know, net promoter it's a, is a kind of thing where, 
Um, you know, there's layers to this, right? I, you, you understand the appeal, right? Mm -hmm. I think we all do. It's simple. Um, it's intuitively understandable that if people will tell other people to, to, that they like, you know, my watch or my beer or whatever, that that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, I'm always, uh, there's a, I hate to, there's, there's a quote I always liked, which was, uh, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead. He said, seek simplicity and distrust it. So <laughs> it's nice. Simplicity is good. And a lot of things in life really are pretty simple. Um, but you should always be a little skeptical. And so I think, you know, the, the thing about net promoter that's tricky is that as a measurement, it's, it's, um, single items are, are a problem because they're, they're not terribly reliable when you compare to multiple items. Although, you know, mm -hmm. some single items can be pretty good. Um, the thing, problem with net promoter is it's not a terribly good measurement in the sense that, you know, diff, the same net promoter score, score can mean totally different things depending on the, the components of that score for mm -hmm. people who are familiar with it. You know, if you know in terms of your promoters and your detractors, yeah. you know, you're only counting two of the three groups. And yeah. so, you know, there's different ways to get the same number. And, and, and so it can be a hard measurement to use in terms of uh, what it means. Um, I think the other part that's tricky is, you know, how do you help people understand how that happens? And so you know, the classic sort of survey research way to do this would be to ask other questions and see what those sort of, you know, drivers, if you will, of, of that mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, attitude are uh, to, to get people to say that they're going to recommend you. Um, that oftentimes, you know, that then by then you've kind of flying in the face of the simplicity of only asking one question. And so I think, you know, and I'm, I'm not as familiar with what everybody's done with this, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, if any measurement system, you should end with people under, uh, discussing what does this mean and what do we do to make it better. Um, well, and, yeah. and, and also, I, you know, I, I just to ask another question on top of that, Jim, the, the, you know, I think, Julie, one of the things that you found in your research is that, you know, some astronomically high number of clients say, I would be willing to, to refer my advisor to somebody else. But when we, you know, ask them, have you actually done it? The number is a very small fraction of that. And so, um, you know, are there questions, Jim, that, 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 you know, other than the would you be willing to kind of question that might be, you know, more useful for, you know, in terms of, of finding out what people actually do as opposed to what they might be willing to do? Uh, yeah, you know, so in the book, you know, we listed sort of 11 questions that we used to ask and we've, we decided that was a little long. It was kind of hard to expect people to do that. And so we've, we've kind of boiled it down to three and I'll, I'll give you the three. Um, and so, and these are work generally kind of across industries, um, that, you know, that, that my financial advisor, if you want to put it in that perspective, always delivers on what they promise. And that gets at real sort of basic confidence, you know, like I got what I expected. Uh, people don't like surprises in the negative sense. And so that's a, sort of measures that, you know, a very simple thing is I'm proud to be a customer of X. Um, uh, we like to be associated with things that, uh, make us, that help us reinforce our belief in ourselves as smart, rational, uh, sensible people who do the right thing. And, 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 you know, the extreme case example of that is always, you know, that I've, I've done some work with Harley Davidson over the years and you meet a lot of people <laughs> tattoo sure. the name on their body mm -hmm. and say lots of outlandish things about how great their motorcycles are, which is what everybody aspires to. Um, so that's an easy one to understand that. And then. And then another one that, that a lot of companies think is a little uh, far-fetched, but is actually a pretty good item and, and actually the strongest one statistically in here, it's a perfect company for people like me. And so it's it's it, a lot of times in, in, in when humans kind of uh, think about their lives, the best way to extrapolate um, how much something means to you is what would you do if you didn't have it anymore? And so, you know, how and, and it gets that kind of irreplaceability, which, you know, most things aren't truly irreplaceable, but they can feel irreplaceable. Um, and how much is it sort of fit who you are? And especially in our, our day now where things are personalized and, and specialized and, and individualized, that, that that becomes more and more useful, uh, uh, sort of an item to ask people. Now, those are just the outcomes. So that those measure very well. If you, if you give answers to that that are high, you have formed a sort of a strong attachment or engagement with that brand then I think you would then want to understand a few other things about how you got there and what's working and what's not working. Um, but, um, and those things, I, I think if it all boils down to really, um, you know, do, does, a, does a company make you feel valued like as a, as an individual and as a, and as a customer or a person, I mean, in financial you know, parlance, that could be as simple as um, making sure that you people feel that you care about their financial well-being and, and help them understand how to improve that. I mean, if you don't want to get into this kind of survey research and just kind of think about how you would talk to people, um, I think, you know, 
and what little work I've done the last few years with the, with the financial planning and, 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 and investment community and wealth management, you know, that's where a lot of them were going, you know, towards, you know, how do we help people improve their financial well-being? In a, in, in, and that can mean a lot of things and a lot of different things, a lot of different people, right? So some people are planning for retirement and they're near retirement. That's very different than someone who doesn't have a lot of resources, but needs to kind of figure out how to not get trapped in the sort of cycle of not being able to pay their bills every month. Um, but if you can show people that you care about that well-being and make that make your contributions to that well-being irreplaceable and, and make them feel valued as a, as a part of that, you know, that'll take you a long way. And then you can start asking questions about little things, you know, like, did they like Mike versus Mary or, mm-hmm. or did they, uh, do they want to do their transactions digitally or in person and stuff like that? I mean, well, I think it was, we're all learning, right. That all, all channels are available to all people because we're all different. We all have different preferences for these things. Um, that that's uh, something that's going to vary from person to person. But, um, but this individualization, if you can think about that as your sort of core precept, you know, it'll take you a long way. Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting because we we, there, we run into this conundrum almost where I think financial advisors, uh, you know, more so than in a lot of industries, would understand and appreciate the uh, emotional connection that people have with them because we're talking about their lives and and their futures. Um, interesting then when we start to think about the client experience, we almost go directly for some of those more rational indicators. Do we meet often enough? Do you, you know, do we call you back quickly? Do we, um, and, and yet from what you're saying, I think we need to maybe hone in on those emotional indicators. And I I know you talk about sort of emotional connection and I think you say there's like four different components to that. Can, can you sort of tease that a, a little for us so that we understand a bit more about what that means? Sure. Um, so, you know, in, in, you know, in the book, we go into this, um, there's sort of, uh, four levels of emotional attachment we identified. Um, and, um, and sort of the first, uh, uh the sort of most basic of those, if you don't have this, don't bother with the other ones is confidence, you know, and, and, um, uh, this is, if you ever remember, remember that movie, meet the parents, you know, there's that sort of circle of trust moment where De Niro I can't <laughs> trust you, you know, you're in, an, you're either in the circle or outside the circle. So confidence really gets it whether you're in the circle. Right. And so, um, and some people have elevated this by the way, into their whole brand promise. Right. You know, so FedEx, you know, a, 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 a makes a, makes a great statement about, you know, kind of always being there on time and blah, blah, blah. And, and so, you know, you can make a big play out of just confidence if you're the best at it. Um, and so that's, you know, a, a sort of a foundational emotional attachment. It's, are you inside the circle of trust? Are you going to do what you said you were going to do every day, every time I need you? Um, and, you know, always is, is, a, is a big standard, but that's kind of what people are looking for. Um, and we talk about this as an emotional thing. I mean, it sounds kind of procedural, but, um, uh, you know, the way people form emotional attachments get at some of those things you were talking about. Uh, the signals, you know, because we don't know, right? I, we, unless we just ask you, do you love me? You know, <laughs> how do you, how can you tell? You know, <laughs> right. You know, when my grandma used to send me a loaf of bread every week when I was in college, you know, that was kind of a clue, right? You know, because she was old and her hands didn't work very well, but she still wouldn't put the effort to doing that. So as a financial advisor, that's not going to happen maybe. But, you know, should, am I calling you often enough? You know, I, I need to know you a little bit to know how often I should call you maybe, right? Or how often are we meeting? Or do I send you the right information? I should ask you what you want and how do you want the information? And, and, you know, I can give it to you like this or like this, or how often do you want me to call you, you know, involve me in that sort of interaction so that I send as the customer, a clear signal to you what I want. Then you can send the clear signal to me that you care by doing that. Um, now in a big organization that gets hard when you have hundreds of customers, but you know, there are ways to kind of do some of that. But so anyway, so confidence is kind of the most basic uh, of these emotions, you know, and, and then the next one up is, is, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how you name these things. You know, we, we could, we call it kind of fairness or justice or so we end up calling it fairness or, or integrity. And, um, and so this is really, you know, the, the easiest way to think about this is, you know, how do you, how do you react when things don't go right? Um, and so, um, you know, do you, um, uh, treat me fairly? Um, and fairly is in the eye of the beholder, right? You know, so, we, you know, that can be in a different thing when you're flying on an airline and everyone paid the different fare um, versus, you know, how do I procedurally wait for my next turn to be served? 
any sort of sort of fairness, uh, and there's a big section in the book on that. There's distributive fairness, there's procedural fairness, there's there, fairness. We're great at fairness as people, basically. We've devised a lots of different kinds of fairness. That's one big part of that. And then the other way to maybe think about it more easily is, you know, when things go wrong, how do you how do you fix it? So is it is it is it is a problem resolution a good thing? And and I think you know we like to avoid you know making mistakes and and having problems in our relationships. But when things go wrong you know, how do we react and, and how do we make it right? Um, so that's really what integrity is about. And that's sort of the baser, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, levels of that sort of uh, emotional attachment pyramid. The higher levels ones are what we call pride and passion. And, you know, it's interesting as researchers to kind of try to discuss things like this in sort of cold analytical ways. But um, pride is really about uh, positive association and identification, you know, uh, yeah, real, you know, Steve said you worked on a university campus. You know, if you're if you're uh, <clears throat> if you're at one of those schools that cares about sports and they win a game, you can see that because people are wearing the uniform, and um, and uh, and when they lose a game, maybe they don't talk about it so much and not wearing the uniform. And and so that's you know, <laughs> a, a, a fairly common thing called basking in reflected glory. You know, we like to belong to things that are successful and 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 be associated with things that reinforce our self-image as smart, sensible customers or 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 people that buy the right brands or look the right way and, and what have you, whatever our sort of self-conception is, um, uh, pride really kind of functions on these multiple levels. You know, it's, it's associating with me and telling me, helping me tell people, this is who I am. It's also a little bit of it's telling me who I am. You know, it's, it'd be nice to think that we had this plan for our lives and, and that we understood every single thing we did, but sometimes we actually have to observe our own behavior as weird as that sounds to understand kind of who we are and what we like to do. And so pride is really a, an understanding that as customers or clients, um, who we choose to work with, who we choose to have as a financial advisor, who we choose to bank with, says something about us to ourselves and others. And when you do that right, um, those scores will be high. You know, say I'm proud to be a customer of Harley Davidson or Air, Apple Computing or whoever, um, and, and that people always treat me with respect. Um, people are, you know, respect is, um, and, and, and in a more diverse world, this is becoming more important and harder to do in the sense of how do you uh, acknowledge that people uh, on the good side that have unique and, 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 and wonderful contribution to make with you as a customer. And on the negative side, how do you make people feel like they don't belong here and maybe like you're going to, you know, follow them around wishing they didn't steal something. <laughs> you think about the negative <laughs> aspect of, 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 of uh, that sort of uh, pride. Passion is kind of the ultimate expression of emotional attachment. It's kind of our highest level. Um, that's where people say a little weird things, and it can be about almost anything. One of the my favorite stories from our, our our sort of basic research was we interviewed people about anything they felt that way about. And one of the women we interviewed it was Miracle Whip, you know, the salad dressing, and um, <laughs> and actually where, it was irreplaceable. Her because, well, so you know, other people, of course, we're we're kind of trying to. You get in a room full of people, they start to out, try to out think each other sometimes but she had a very compelling story basically she was a uh she had a big family and in the, and she was a caterer um but she really went back to her family as a as the as aunt i can't remember aunt pam i think her name was um aunt pam she was known in the families who made is the best cook and who made the best stuff and organized the best family reunions and parties and stuff like that and she said miracle whip helped her be that person um, as the way that made stand out, and wow. so you know, uh, so I think people we've met a lot of with a lot of executives who don't feel like their company has anything like that to give, and and I challenge them, you know, actually most of you, uh, in fact, to our extent, anyone we've met has customers who feel that way about you, believe it or not, ever whoever you are, and so you know, it's it's uh, it's perfect for me. Um, I can't imagine what I would do without it or a world without it. Um, it's irreplaceable. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, I had a father who smoked, you know, for 50 years. Um, he pretends he's quit now. So I hope he, he, my mom doesn't listen to this. Um, you know, so you don't want it to be, you know, a chemical addiction. <laughs> you know, those viceroys were irreplaceable to him. That's not where we're going here. You know, you don't, you know, but there's a, there's a good version of that where, um, if you had to fly a different airline, you know, it's uncomfortable because you don't really know how the procedures work. You don't know what to do. It feels different. Or if you had to, you know, buy your coffee at a different place or, or wear a different pair of shoes, you know, sometimes those things become very important. Um, and it's interesting in my line of work and probably yours, you know, anyone you meet, I kind of like to interrogate them about these things just to kind of see, you know, like, 
you know, my doctor or my nurses, you know, ask them what shoes they're wearing, which are really comfortable because I kind of could like, <laughs> they usually have pretty strong opinions and it's, it's fun to kind of elicit that stuff from them. But those are kind of the layers of this. So I, there's a, that sort of basic thing is, uh, you know, can I believe in what you're going to do and will you treat me fairly to that higher level stuff of uh, what I be working or being a customer of yours says something about me that I like. And in fact, is so strong that I can't imagine switching to somebody else. It's and, and you, you made this point earlier, but I just wanted to underscore it as well that I mean, what you're talking about is, is a different, uh, not necessarily a different way to measure, but it's, it's forcing us to think about measuring different things. The, and we talk a lot about differentiation in this, in this industry as, as they do in others. And I think this is sort of at the core of that. And at the same time, we need to go deeper to say, well, if we looked at these four types of connection, how do we demonstrate that through the eyes of the client and how do we impact? Like, what are the levers that we can pull in order to impact that? Not enough to just say, did we get a 10 out of 10 or a five out of five on that? Um, and right. that's where I think we're missing, you know, an opportunity to get really practical with, with some people. And, and at many, many levels, right? So there's a, there's a sort of a corporate levers, you know, how do we mm -hmm. brand things? How do we, you know, explain things, how so advertising, what kind of promises mm -hmm. does it make? And then there's the on the ground examples. You know, I, I love, um, you know, how Southwest Airlines has sort of enabled or empowered its flight attendants yeah. to be who they are and have fun yeah. and be fun. And, um, and so flying with them is a very different experience in a lot of ways. But one of the big ones and most positive is just that, they, you know, you're interacting with people that actually seem like they like what they're doing and they make it a little more pleasant for you to be there. Um, and, you know, so part of the book, we talk about how do you understand that what you want to do is reduce the variance in those emotional outcomes by making every customer feel that way about you. But you might that might actually require you to cut the strings of some of your employees, as, you know, for anybody who's seen Pinocchio, uh, which might probably all of us um, <laughs> uh, and let the people who are doing the job on the ground be who they are. So let them know what you want them to do but don't necessarily tie their hands by describing exactly how they're supposed to do it. I mean, we all have some rules, you know, you need to wear the uniform, you need to do this, you need to do that. But beyond that, you know, we're much better at understanding the outcome and the pattern and being ourselves to achieve that than we are at trying to remember a, a really long script of things to do. And oftentimes those go the wrong way too. So, you know, we have, there's a tendency also to, um, collect that measurement at the corporate level, you know, and, and then try to do things on an organization level to, to, you know, sort of systematize that experience. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is really interesting. How do we, besides just letting the team members be themselves and, and, and enjoy what they do and, and reflect that on, on the clients, what kinds of things can we teach the, the, the individual people interacting with clients to, you know, help them understand, it, it, because in our, in our business, individual team members, you know, may be the primary point of contact with, with the organization. So you right. might have an organization of advisors and have five or seven advisors. How do you teach, um, what kinds of things would you encourage those folks to do to sort of better understand, you know, what turns the client on and how they feel valued and, and, and how to develop that emotional connection as, as, as an alternative or as a supplement to, to actually collecting information on, on uh, you know, client feelings about the firm? Sure. So I think you, you need to do the basic research and understand, you know, what, what's common and when things go right and when it doesn't go right. Um, and, you know, it varies, obviously, from circumstance to circumstance. But ideally, you communicate that to the people who are actually interacting with the customers. And you encourage them to think about when their stuff goes right, what's it feel like, what's it look like. How does it line up with what we identified as the general pattern? And when things don't go wrong, now, now we're not always the greatest judges of our own behavior on that. So, and the financial advisor is in a little trickier spot because oftentimes you might be the only one in the room um, with the customer. So, you know, it's a, it's a little trickier. But in, in general, um, uh, one should have a little help from your colleagues uh, who observe you doing this, you know, to help you steer you in that way as well. So, you know, we, we, um, we like to talk about this sort of transformation of managers today as more of as more less boss and more of a coach where they help you identify, observe what you're doing, help you uh, understand what things went right, reinforce when things went right, uh, check in with you and make quick connections with you to um, to kind of message, you know, those things with you um, and help you develop, you know, with a little coaching and, and some reviews, uh, frequent and informal reviews, I, I want to emphasize. 
to help you learn on the job in the experience when things are going right for you. Because people will be able to identify that feeling and that um, uh, stuff in the moment if it's reinforced quickly. Um, it's easier to learn that way than it is a lot of other ways. Um, and, it's, and even if you're doing the other communication with the data and the research, you want to reinforce it with this kind of stuff. Um, so I think, you know, the, the trick is to, is to understand uh, how well you're doing um, and make people at the, at the, who are actually interacting with the customers accountable for those things going well, but let them try to figure it out on their own to the extent possible because they're the ones who are there. They have brains. Um, they are capable of learning and getting better if they're encouraged to do so and, and, and uh, managed and uh, developed in a way that encourages them to do that. Um, and by the way, especially millennial employees now, they really expect that, you know, they've, they've grown up in a little different way. Their university experience is a little bit different. They're expecting a little more development. They're expecting their job to have a little more purpose. If you assign the higher purpose, you know, beyond, you know, selling them the next cell phone plan to actually making them a customer for life and make them understand that this is the way you want them to relate to you, that'll mean more to them. And they'll be more uh, inclined to want to do that uh, in, in general, I think, than, than, uh, than even previous uh, generations of people have been. I'm not sure mm -hmm. that answered your question, but <laughs> well, no, I, well, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Yeah. And you're, you're make, putting me in mind of, uh, you know, the fact that, that often when we, we think about the, the client interaction, necessarily to some extent, we go down the path of workflow and process and defining the steps that need to happen. And, and I think we'd probably agree that there's, uh, you know, some benefit. It's not just the Wild West, just do whatever you want and, and hope it works yeah. out. But it's almost like you're trying to find that line in what you're saying between that and not over scripting. I know you've got some examples in the book. I always think of if I if I have an issue, which say it is, you know, I don't know, a cell phone company, um, which I'm on <laughs> like a first name basis <laughs> with right now. Um, but if I call them and, you know, the first thing I hear is something like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, Ms. Littlechild. Um, I'm sorry you feel that way. And, and you're, oh, no, stop reading that script. Go off script. Go off. And it, it's <laughs> terrible, right? Because you feel like you're not talking to a person anymore. I mean, how do we how do we think about the need for workflow and the need for authenticity? And, and how do we figure out how to draw the line or where to draw the line? It's, it is an interesting balancing act. You're right, because uh, I feel like the same thing where everyone's apologizing to me all the time now. But Yeah, but not doing anything, about it, which I find interesting. And so I think we, we lose the, the significance of the emotional content by scripting it, right? So some people are good at reading the script. They'll make you feel like they actually believe it, and maybe they do. Um, but most people, you know, you, you can kind of tell. Um, and if you think about uh, any kind of our interactions, you know, with our children, with our family, with our customers, with our employees, you know, the, that emotional content, a lot of the sort of edges around what you're saying means a lot to people. Um, and so, you know, scripting kind of gets in the way of that because it turns you into some other thing than, than a person uh, sometimes if, if you adhere to it a little too strongly. Uh, financial, you know, world, is, it's a lot, I, I understand people in a lot harder uh, place there because the regulatory environment sometimes makes you do things that sound like you don't know what you're doing because you have to bring somebody else in to authorize things or you know, make you have to sign a lot of things or go through a procedure that's just, you know, so sometimes it's how you do it. I mean, you may, a lot of this stuff may be unavoidable, um, but if you could explain to people why you're doing it and, and kind of try to personalize it in a way that's useful to you, people will understand that uh, to the extent possible. You can do some of that. Um, I've, I've, I can't tell you how many times we've done work with like a retail banking environment where, you know, if a customer's standing in line and they're watching a bunch of employees not doing anything, it makes them really angry. Now, they don't know that they've balkanized the job so much that those people literally don't have anything to do until somebody needs them to do something else. Um, and so we'd tell them, you know, if you don't have anything to do, look busy so that they don't get mad. <laughs> people understand that if they come to the, and, you know, I'm, I realize how old I am. Now. I'm talking about people going to the bank, but you go to the yeah. bank at, at noon, you know, so it's, it's a dated example somewhat. Uh, if you go to the bank at noon, you expect to wait, right? You know, I'm like, okay, I'm like every other doofus here at the same time. But, and, and people will blame themselves rather than the bank to oversimplify things. But if you got a bunch of people staying around not doing anything or who can't, when you get up there, can't do anything without nine other people approving it, it makes them look like you hired people who don't know what they're doing. Um, now, there are ways to do that that can make them not look so helpless um, that, you know, it's a little long to get into that here. But, but you know, so think about this, that you, you're always kind of on camera. You know, you 
think about the signal you're sending to people the, with the way you do some of these procedures that sometimes may be unavoidable. Um, you know, I guess I have to get a permit from the city, but, you know, make me understand why and, and, and make it a little less uh, onerous of an experience. And I'll, I'll run with it a lot more uh, uh, happily than otherwise. It's and, and I mean, to me, because we started part of this conversation with the connection between the, the client and the employee interaction. And, and these are the examples, right? This, these are the examples that make it so clear that we can't look at the at client experience just as a, a client issue. It's it's both. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to our to our peril, we, we can go down one path and get it very wrong. Easily. Yeah. Easily. And, and, and so you need eyes open, ears open all the time to understand what's happening. Always kind of question, you know, the way you're doing things, um, not in a paranoid way, but in a, in a healthy sort of continuous improvement way. Um, so whatever signals you're getting, be those from survey data, be those from actual interactions or just talking to customers, keep those lines of communication open. Let the employees feel like active participants in it so that if they have a good idea, listen to it. I mean, if they have an idea, I should say, listen to it. They won't all be good. A lot of them won't be good. But you want them to feel like they can contribute those because sometimes the people who interact with the customer will have a much better sense of what to do or at least what's going wrong in, in a negative environment than, than people who are kind of analyzing it from two layers away. Um, and even if their idea isn't that great, you want them to feel part of the solution um, because they'll be that much more involved in whatever ends up happening. And you, you make this reference, I, I probably won't get it exactly right, but um, when, you're, when you're thinking about client experience, I'll paraphrase if I could, if you're thinking about client experience and making changes, uh, are you doing that to solve a business problem or a client problem? And that's, you said something along those lines somewhere. But, but I thought it's such a great, and it's not, it's not a bad thing to solve a business problem, but but understand that that is very different. That's about efficiency and profitability. And uh, but when we start also saying how do we solve the client problem? First of all, we have to understand what they are, and not assume we understand right. what they are, because it turns out the client problems aren't solving your business problems often. Uh, no. So just clarifying that, right? I think is is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so look, I know we, we kept you way longer than we um, said we would, but, um, what, uh, I mean, what's, what are you looking at now as you look forward, you have this, this role of being able to, to, to try to look forward and answer some big questions. What are you seeing coming? What, is, what has captured your imagination? Well, you know, we've been doing some really interesting work lately on the sort of employee side in terms of identifying the kind of common uh, things that people are asked to do in their job. And if you actually look at how people are kind of measured and the, and the things we want them to do, there's really only about, we found really only about seven big buckets of things that, that <laughs> sort of the core expectations, and, and they're big, you know, the, sort of core expectations have, you know, you build relationships with people, uh, you develop people, you lead change, you inspire people, think critically, communicate clearly, and create accountability. Those are really the kind of the seven big things we want employees to do on the job. And so once we've identified that, now we've kind of come back to our, our strengths research that I've been doing and others have been doing to understand how do you take who you are to best do those seven things. And so, you know, at some point we're going to kind of release this. I don't know exactly how, but, um, but we're putting together content that says, you know, you with these sort of uh, what we call themes of, of strength or talent, um, how do you as an analytical person build relationships? You know, it's going to be different than um, how someone who is sort of naturally empathetic does that. You know, we're different people. We uh, perceive situations differently. Both of them have value, but we need to understand that those things happen differently. And so if you think in the context, again, I think of a, of a financial advisor meeting with a customer for the first time, you know, and you want to tell them, that, you know, hey, you need to build a rapport with these people and build a relationship with them. If you give them a list of things that people uh, are supposed to do, um, that list may or may not line up with kind of what's easy for you to do. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you're a sort of person who naturally succeeds at connecting with people, you don't need the script. You're going to do fine. Um, <laughs> and, if, and if you're a highly analytical person, the script's going to maybe include seven things that are really not very comfortable for you. Um, Smile. 
And so, yeah, you know, smile, say hello within seven seconds and shake hands and all this stuff. (laughs) You know, some of that's non-negotiable, right? You know, as a, as a, as a person, you might expect someone to, you know, actually smile at you or be nice to you. You know, don't judge on how well they did it. But if you're a highly analytical person, lead with that and say, Hey, you know, um, I'm a kind of a numbers guy and here's what I think we can do for you. And, and lean into that because, um, they're going to notice that that's what you're passionate about and that's what value you have to sell. And, you know, they might be that kind of person too. Um, and even if they aren't, they might uh, want you to be who you are when you're talking to them because that's going to feel like you're actually interacting instead of kind of going through a, a, a routine. Uh, and, and, um, and so we're, we're trying to package that in a way so that if you, once you take the you know, Clifton Strikes assessment, it says, hey, if you want to learn how to kind of, you know, do a little better on your job, with who you are, here's some tips. You know, it's not, again, any, all of our work is around how do you start the conversation? We think ultimately, you know, when we collect data, it should spur a conversation, not replace it. Um, and anytime the data collection is replacing a conversation, you've kind of missed the point. Um, because you're, if that's the end of things, you're not, you're not going to get out of it what you need. Hmm. So, um, so Jim, you mentioned that, uh, you know, your marketing department would be appalled by the extent to which you cannot quickly identify where you <laughs> go to look. So we'll make sure that we include all of the links in in the show notes that give the correct ones. And, have, and, your, have your marketing uh, people send have, them over to us. Yeah, okay. And but, um, but where can people? Where would you suggest people go to learn more about you or the work that you're doing? You know, the beautiful thing about working in a place like Gallup is we're easy to find. Yes. So, you know, if you go to gallup.com, you can pr- find a link to just about everything we do between, you know, from our strengths work to mm-hmm. our work in terms of employee and customer engagement to our strengths work to, um, you know, we, we build assessments for to help uh, hire uh, more productive people. Obviously, we do a lot of polling still on, on the mis- important issues of the day, as well as, you know, well-being around the world. It's it's a cool place to work because we're, we were awash in really interesting information and that sort of gallop.com is the gateway to a lot of that stuff um and um i, I could give you a handful of links but i think if you just do that yeah. you're good okay that's perfect well we will make sure that is in there and thank you so much for your time it's been just fascinating yeah thank you jim oh it's nice to talk to you guys you know it's been uh it's always fun to kind of get on the phone and, and go through these things hey folks steve again thanks for joining us on becoming referable If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.